Welcome to the Sleep Roundtable podcast. Each week leading up to the 10th annual Sleep Roundtable, I'll be chatting with one of this year's renowned industry expert speakers. If you haven't already, be sure to get registered for the roundtable. It's the leading dental sleep conference for sleep dentists and their teams. And it's in Dallas on October 7th through 10th. Go to sleeproundtable.com to get registered. Now sit back and get ready to learn a thing or two in preparation for this year's highly anticipated sleep roundtable. Enjoy. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Devin Dobroszelski. He is the Associate Professor in the Department of Kinesiology at Towson University in Maryland. He has a PhD in Kinesiology from LSU and a Master's in Health and Exercise Science from Wake Forest. As we know in sleep, exercise, diet, weight, all of this has a lot to do with what we treat and that's the field of sleep. And we know that if people don't get enough exercise, if they don't control their weight, if they don't eat properly, they're not going to sleep well. And I know that you've dedicated uh, your career basically on, on researching the relationship between all of this. So I want to welcome you to the Sleep Roundtable podcast. I'm so glad to have you here. Appreciate the invitation, Dr. Smith. Uh, it's, it's my pleasure, and I look forward to the meeting in October as well. Yeah, we're looking forward to that too. You know, you have a PhD in kinesiology and a master's in health and exercise science, but how did you start focusing on its relationship to sleep apnea? Because seems like a leap, but you know, I don't know, maybe it wasn't much for you. It's a great question. I'm, I'm glad you asked me that question and I've addressed this before. And I also sometimes tell my students how this happened too. Uh, after earning my PhD at LSU, I did a brief teaching stint at Wake Forest again. I knew that wasn't going to turn into a long-term commitment. And at the time, one of my former mentors, uh, Kerry Stewart, uh, received some funding at, Johns at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. He said, I need a young investigator to help me manage these large clinical trials that are looking at the effects of exercise and different diets on cardiovascular health and those with uh, metabolic disease. And so when, when I arrived, we you know, started doing the planning for these, these studies and some of our colleagues in pulmonary medicine caught wind that we were doing these large studies. And we sat down, I remember the day very well, we sat down in Carrie's office and uh, they said, so you're doing studying weight loss uh, uh, with diet and exercise. Why are you not looking at sleep apnea. And so that may have been the first time I really heard that term. And that's really where the trajectory, my, the shift of my, my research path changed. And I did uh, certainly a lot of research on that and um, realized that this is a very serious condition and the, the, the pathways uh, that cause cardiovascular disease are, are triggered by OSA independently. So we developed, uh, in addition to doing those larger studies, I, I got funding to do a smaller study where I was looking at sleep apnea in older adults. 
and how exercise and weight loss with diet uh, led to a reduction in OSA. Uh, and, and as you know, OSA actually, the, the prevalence increases with age too. There had been plenty that was done on, on weight loss and sleep apnea. We know that happens. That wasn't particularly novel, but uh, the fact that we were working with older adults at the time uh, was novel. And we also looked at some cardiovascular markers um, uh, in that study. And, and that's where it started. Wow. So that was at Wake Forest, right? That was at Johns Hopkins. Okay. All right. But, but you were teaching some at Wake Forest. So that was a two-year teaching stint. Uh, it was a non-tenure non track position. So I knew that at some point I would have to say goodbye and move on. Um, so, I, yeah, I went back to, to Wake Forest to teach after I'd earned my master's. Okay. So then you went to Towson. And what year was that? 2012. I've been there since 2012. All right. And you teach undergraduate students there? Correct. Now, I know that you're a big advocate of teaching them to, to do research, to get involved in research. So what kind of research do undergraduates do at Towson? Well, so I'm in the, in the unique position to work with undergraduates on research projects. Some larger institutions, the sophistication of their, you know, the research may be larger, but they don't have that connection necessarily with, with undergraduate students. So I'm very fortunate to to do that. So um, when, while at Towson, I've engaged them in any project that I have been doing. And for the, the students in our, our program, most want to be clinicians, whether they're PTs, PAs, medicine, even some dental students, uh, or would be dental students gone through our program. And, and so they want to work with humans, individuals. And I find that the research process, involving them in that research process and learn and developing a skill set in that area is very much uh, transferable to whatever they do clinically. Most don't want to do, do research. They want to be clinicians. And they quickly realize, though, that the decisions they make as a clinician are informed by the research process. So for them to be involved in the patient recruitment, the testing, the data analysis and interpretation and disseminating that, that information at conferences or papers perhaps uh, is very useful for them, uh, it, for students going into these healthcare professions. Yeah, I didn't get any access to anything about research when I went through undergrad and, and, and not in dental school either. So that would have been fascinating. I guess you do have some that go into research after that, but just not very many. Uh, yeah, there's a fair bit that do. Um, it, they may at least um, do a research stint somewhere else, and they use that as a, a foundation to, to then go maybe if they are going to for a graduate degree in PT or on to the medical school, they do use this experience uh, to set them apart from other undergraduates who don't have that experience. Yeah, I can see how that would be very beneficial. So I know in 2014, you founded the Towson Research Academy of Collaborative Sports Science. Uh, what prompted you to do that? I mean, what, what sparked that, 
desire to create that? Sure. Uh, so the impetus for that was, well, number one, I one of my frustrations in being a scientist or in higher education is we do research and much of it sits in a journal and it's not touched other than from people who are interested or colleagues or people who are in higher education or scientists themselves. So what I, what I try to do is uh, the research I engage in, I want it to be translatable and applicable. Uh, and so at the time back then, I was interested in studying uh, sleep apnea prevalence in our football, the football team at Towson University. And again, this wasn't necessarily a new idea. It's been done in the NFL players uh, where, you know, linemen, as you can imagine, there's a high prevalence of sleep apnea in that subset. So I wanted to see if, well, what would we find in our Towson players? And in order to do that, required uh, buy-in and uh, a collaboration with sports medicine, obviously. Uh, to get access to the players. So, um, you know, we learned that, you know, we could accomplish more together than doing things separately. And so uh, that's what started this, this collaborative. Uh, and one of the things that came out of that study was the fact that now sports medicine, uh, athletic trainers, um, the sports medicine staff are measuring sleep uh, in, you know, via Root, uh, via questionnaires and, and potentially screening players for sleep disorders, and then setting up a referral system uh, with the hospital uh, to get them treated. So I think that was really the, the purpose of uh, tracks is what we, what we call it. Uh, and um, now we're at a point where we've collected a lot of data on all of our athletes and published several papers looking at body composition and, and publishing kind of normal body, normative body composition data uh, that the clinicians can then use to determine or make clinical decisions with. Uh, but, but that was the whole purpose of tracks, and that's what we're going to continue to do. Yeah, I remember reading an article, a study a few years ago that I think it were Swedish stationary cyclists. And they show that it, even if they exercise at night, they would cycle for two hours at, at night, they would still have better sleep than if they hadn't exercised. So has that been disputed at all? Do you, do you encourage anybody not to exercise at night because it interferes with sleep? I never have. Uh, and I don't know that particular study that you, you, you're referring to. Um, I never have because I've always felt that Part of that's out of people's control to begin with uh, when they exercise. And I don't want to put up barriers for people to prevent them from exercising and like to get into the mindset where, oh, I didn't get it in last night. I might as, you know, I might as well forget about it today. And so I don't know the, the you know, that what the latest is on that. My sense is that um, exercise at any point is beneficial. Good, 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 good. I'm glad you agree. <laughs> so you mentioned the work with cardiovascular health and we know there's a connection. Um, and we know, you know, I get referrals from, from cardiologists, patients with AFib, for example, it's, it's pretty common. 
So what connections have you come up with between cardiovascular health and, and better sleep or OSA? Um, have you guys done any, any research in that specific area? Yes. Yeah, so since I left Hopkins, I've done a, f- a few projects here related to uh, sleep in general uh, and sleep apnea specifically. Uh, I, I was fortunate to get funding, uh, NIH funding, to look at um, uh, one of the things that I became interested in uh, is that often sleep has or, or exercise has been look, looked at as a treatment for sleep apnea. I was actually interested in looking at the opposite. So does having sleep apnea impair one's ability to improve vascular health with exercise? Interesting. Project that ended in 2019, thankfully right before COVID hit, uh, we had over 55 participants over three years and it, it, the project was designed to look at exactly that question where we exercised people for six weeks. And the reason why it was so short is because there was some, there's evidence to suggest that vascular function changes uh, can occur very quickly with exercise. So we can detect changes uh, and we do look at uh, vascular function in uh, conduit vessels and, and determine how they change in, in response to a stimulus, in this case, exercise. So we, the study was, is now over. It, our, our main paper is coming out soon in uh, translational sports medicine, uh, should be in the next issue. And, and we, we divided people up according to uh, their sleep apnea severity. Did you divide by age as well? Because I know they probably react differently. Well, that's a good question. And with our sample, we didn't design it that way. Uh, And everybody was, it was pretty broad age category, anywhere from 35 to 65. Uh, And we just don't quite have the numbers to dive into that question. Uh, We looked at people with, with separated them a number of different ways. We ended up separating them based on the HI cutoff of 15, which is, you know, the, the clinical cutoff. Uh, they both did the same type of exercise, same time. And guess what we found? We found nothing. We found, let me, let me, let me clarify. We found no changes in, no differences in the changes in vascular function according to OSA severity. But that's, you know, it was kind of a negative finding, but it also helps us to figure out, well, what's going on here? And I think there's sometimes we look at we look at the literature and everything's positive or going in the direction that we would expect it to. In this case, it didn't, but it, it helps us to try to hypothesize, well, what's going on? To your point, uh, it may be an issue of, of age. Uh, it may be an issue of, you know, these were community dwelling individuals. The severe people had high AHIs, but uh, perhaps um, it wasn't developed enough to see an impact on this particular exercise modality that we use or the intensity or the time or the duration. So uh, it doesn't mean that it's bad. It wasn't a, a bad finding, it says, but our stimulus wasn't of the sense wasn't of the um, 
intensity needed perhaps to make a change. And the OSA wasn't severe enough to see an actual difference between responses of those people. Well, I know we've also seen what you might call negative research on CPAP's effect on cardiovascular health as well. So yeah, it's, it's kind of depressing, you know, you treat it. Right. And it, and it's, it's, but it's, you know, it, it, uh, one thing I teach undergrads is, you know, to go beyond the headlines and we have to understand the content nuance that's with regard to the CPAP studies. You have to look at, well, what was the dosing of it and were they compliant and, and all those sorts of things play into it. I mean, doing these types of studies is very difficult. Well, you've also established a lot of exercise programs in the community and for the public in general. You know, that's something that we get asked about a lot in our offices. You know, patients want to know how they can get better sleep and, hey, can I improve sleep apnea by doing anything? Can I play an instrument? Can I, you know, and I'll always bring up exercise. I mean, should we as, as physicians have anything to do with, you know, somehow stimulating these patients to start exercising or to exercise more? I mean, what suggestions would you have for us in stimulating our patients to get better exercise, which would then, as we know, improve their sleep apnea as well as their ability to sleep well? Uh, so the, I guess the first part of that is, do you have a role? And, and I would say, absolutely. Uh, you're, you know, you're that for dentists to see people twice a year. Yeah. Right. You would see twice a year and you would, you would have a chance to intervene. I think the first thing is educate yourselves about it. Uh, but I think the advice should be very simple, um, and not overwhelm people with, with things to do. The, the, Somebody told me once how uh, relate a, a story to me where someone had asked, well, should I do uh, buy a Nordic track? And the next question from the practitioner should be, do you like cross-country skiing? And the response is, well, no, I don't like cross-country. Well, don't get a Nordic track. <laughs> Right. And so I think the number one thing is, is uh, for people to pick something that they enjoy doing. Um, and so maybe uh, probing that that person, like, what do you what do you enjoy doing? Uh, and depending on where they are um, in there with along this health continuum, it really only takes a little bit just to trigger some things in the body that will ultimately be helpful for them. Now, I also believe, I'm starting to really believe that, you know, and this is debatable, I guess, in the exercise science field, like what, what component is most important? I tend to think that intensity of exercise is most important. Uh, and there is quite a bit of, of research on this high intensity interval training where people go up to very high intensities and then back, back down for a, a, a you know, a brief uh, recovery period and then go back up and back down. And that seems to have very strong cardiometabolic effects. And the reason I bring that up, it's important, I think, is because 
the total time, the total duration people are engaged in that can be shrunk. So it may be better for them to fit it into their schedules. One of the things that's very discouraging for me to see, and I know it happens, are people who are overweight, and I know they're trying to lose weight, but they're on a treadmill, like slugging it out for a long period of time. And I don't think that's very helpful. And, and, and the other thing I tell people, and I probably can talk about this more uh, in the meeting in October, is that uh, I tell people if weight loss is a goal, you have to be cognizant of what you are putting in your body. Exercise helps you get fit. Those are things I, I address separately. I never tell people to exercise to lose weight. Now, some people will argue, well, it may help. Well, that may be the case, but I think diet plays a much larger role in that. Well, that makes sense, and I couldn't agree more. And I really look forward to hearing you speak in October. Um, one other thing before we go, I know that, you know, you've done work with collegiate athletes, as you mentioned. And so that's the younger age group. And we do find that we have some, some younger age people coming in. I see pretty much every day in my office, I have somebody in their 20s that comes in for help. I had a, an amazing athlete that came in yesterday, as a matter of fact, and he said, well, I work out all the time. And I go, yeah, I know, but you still got this problem. So what are some indicators or, or some predictors in these young athletes that would cause us to say, hey, how do you sleep? And, and maybe you should get a sleep test. Well, I think that, you know, probably as, as you know, I, I think the biggest predict, predictor of sleep apnea is body size, uh, you know, o overweight, uh, you know, the, the, the neck and the, you know, male uh, sex, the work we did at Towson would suggest that's true. It's, it's the, it's the bigger guys on the line that are suffering from sleep disorders. Um, so I think that you would address it, uh, the same way you would with a middle-aged person. I, I, I will go back to what I said before. I think that, I think it's important to separate diet and exercise when the topic of weight loss comes up. Lots of arguments about what diet's correct. Oh, right? yeah. <laughs> and I think one, one of the reasons that I think we're having the conversation here today is I wrote an article about the impact of, of the importance of lower carbohydrates in our diets. And you got to have to be careful nowadays how you frame that because people will really misconstrue things and I'm not opposed to eating carbohydrates in the least bit, uh, for, but I think that there are a fair number of people who are insulin resistant and um, reducing, you've got to be careful about the type of carbohydrate we're talking about. And I think people would tremendous, diabetics tre benefit tremendously uh, from cutting out a significant portion of, of carbohydrates in their, their diets. Um, and by the way, uh, as a dentist, you know, dentists say, well, avoid the candy, right? I mean, they go hand in hand. Uh, so, um, 
we can get into that in, in the, the meeting a little bit in more depth. But I think to your point, I think keep the advice simple. Uh, treat diet and exercise separately. They, I think the ultimately the, the objectives for each uh, are different. So I, I think that's how I would approach it. Uh, and, but it has to be the forefront of the conversation too. It can't be secondary. Yeah, right, yeah. So what I'm hearing then, let me just to, uh, to sum all that up, if they come in here, you talk, you're gonna tell them how they can lose 30 pounds, right? <laughs> So another thing, getting into the, the whole research thing in undergraduates, I, I teach them that there's research on this side that says this, and you'll find things that are going to refute it. But you have to determine, well, how, which like outweighs the other. I mean, uh, Jim Fix was the guy who started the exercise boom in the 70s. He died of a heart attack. You know, but if we if we took Jim Fix as the example for not to exercise, I think we'd be in, in very serious um, misshape right now. Yeah. Ken Cooper here in the Dallas area has done pretty well with that. Whole That's thing. right. That's right. Yep. The Cooper Clinic. And, and they, you know, uh, Stephen Blair was there and, and they really uh, looked at they were the ones, I think, to really demonstrate how fitness uh, is uh, a predictor of premature mortality and cardiovascular mortality. In, in other words, those who are higher fit are, are going to live longer for the most part. Um, and how do you get there? Well, you get there by staying or uh, getting into shape. All right. Well, I think we have a lot to look forward to in October. So for all of you who want to see Dr. Dobrashelsky speak uh, in person, be sure and get registered for that roundtable. It's in October. Go to sleeproundtable.com and get yourself registered. There'll be hundreds of dentists and team members there to listen to experts like Dr. Dobrzelski. So thanks again for being a part of this. And I really look forward to seeing you in October. Me too. Thank you again, Dr. Smith. Take care. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Sleep Roundtable podcast. Don't forget to head to sleeproundtable.com to register for the 10th Annual Sleep Roundtable and to subscribe to our show. See you in Dallas in October.